Triple E Power Electronics Society's uh, podcast series, um, which is a specific initiative of the Society's Education and Digital Media Committee. Um, today, we have the pleasure and honor of interviewing Andrew Daga, who's the uh, president and CEO of Momentum Dynamics, uh, who himself is not new to uh, IEEE Power Electronics Society. Is that right? Uh, hi, Andy. Hi. And no, I'm not. I've been a member for probably 10 years now. That's correct. And so uh, now are you new to our listeners uh, and audience uh, because we've uh, you know, read your papers and uh, most of the work that you've done, which is the theme of today's um, uh, podcast, actually. Um, so like I said, Andy is the president and CEO of Momentum Dynamics, who are market leaders and developers. Um, they like to think of themselves more of tech providers of autonomous high-power wireless charging systems for, for both automotive and transportation industries. And they're a company that is located in Melbourne, Pennsylvania, which is basically, uh, what, 20 miles west of Philadelphia, if I'm not wrong. That's uh, correct. Andy? That's correct. Right. All right. And also today we have with us uh, my co-host, uh, Professor Prasad Njeti, who is a TI professor with the Department of Electrical and Computer Engineering at Texas A&M University uh, in College Station, Texas. And um, we also have with us uh, in the background, making sure everything goes well, uh, Ms. Megan uh, Sihoki, who is a program specialist with the uh, Power Electronics Society. And uh, Megan is located at the IEEE headquarters in Piscataway, uh, New Jersey. So without further ado, I'll invite my co-host first, uh, Professor Njeri. Uh, go ahead and, and um, Ask the first question, uh, do the honors uh, for us, please. Uh, thank you, Sheldon. Uh, welcome, Andy. And uh, it's great to have you here and talk about the, you know, the state of the art of power electronic you know, uh, wireless charging and also to introduce momentum dynamics and all its practical applications and products. So I would uh, just start off saying, asking you uh, momentum dynamics and how, does, how do you apply wireless charging? So we view uh, wireless charging, or we, we've actually come to call it automatic inductive charging uh, because it's more descriptive, as the best means uh, to charge any electric vehicle. And we often have to tell people or remind people that an electric vehicle is not just a car. It is also an electric bus or an electric truss, a truck. It is also um, uh, electric rail and many industrial vehicles, all of which are electrifying at an unprecedented rate. The difficulty with, uh, particularly with fleet and high utilization electric vehicles is that there is a hidden cost and a, a hidden opportunity risk in the charging infrastructure. If you do it wrong, you could end up uh, as a fleet operator experiencing great expenses that you didn't anticipate. And that's actually happening right now in the bus market. Uh, by offering wireless or automatic inductive charging, what we offer is a, a system that feeds energy to the vehicle automatically, frequently, and um, without um, the high burden costs of operating and maintaining a moving part system. So, for example, we can uh, we can uh, do en route charging of buses and keep the electric buses in operation all day, which is not possible with a plug-in charger used only at the garage. And these value propositions build over time. That's interesting. Very well done. Excellent. 
Um, so thanks, Andy, for introducing MD to us. Uh, you know, we're popularly known as MD, Momentum Dynamics. Um, I had a question, just inquisitively, like when did you first think about wireless charging in your career, Andy? It's interesting. I first thought of it while I was a consultant to NASA. I was working um, uh-huh. on, a, on a space project. And cool. it was um, actually um, the International Space Station. And uh-huh. uh, subsequent to that on several other projects. And the, con- the continuing problem was the high weight penalty of all of the conductive cabling that has to be brought up into orbit. And uh-huh. if reduce that. That's typically aluminum cables, uh, DC cables that carry a lot of current uh, mm-hmm. from, from solar arrays and other things. They um, could reduce the number of launches required to lift large objects and connect them together in orbit and eventually on the surfaces of the moon and Mars. I mm-hmm. was directly involved in those projects and began thinking about short range systems that could be used in proximity to astronauts. And then I thought about terrestrial applications, and it became 2008 when I had that thought, and in the United States, gasoline hit $4 a gallon, and I said, I think electric vehicles are here to stay, and the Mm -hmm. choke point in the system would be the means by which they get fueled. And Mm -hmm. that's where it all started. Wow. Interesting. Great. All right. Um, it's interesting that now, now we are here today with so many, several wireless, uh, just several EVs on the roads nowadays. I know, I know you touched upon some of the advantages of wireless charging. Maybe you want to expand um, what are the advantages and benefits of wireless charging has offers to a user, either a home user or a fleet user. So I believe that wireless charging will find its application in every instance of electric vehicles, including passenger vehicles. It'll take longer, however, for to find a commercial uh, distribution in the passenger vehicle market. But before that, uh, there is a necessity to charge automatically in special use cases such as fleets. So, for example, As the taxis of Europe begin to transition from diesel to electric, they have a problem. And the problem is that they can't stop for two hours of charging, uh, but they have to operate for 24 hours a day. And so if you go to to London or all of the major cities of of Europe, which will have to go electric, uh, this is a very acute problem. And so standing in line behind a DC fast charger does not work. Uh, We've interviewed the drivers. They hate it. Uh, But if you have an automatic charger in the ground, that's a wireless charger, and it's in the queue lane or the rank lines of the taxis as they line up at the various train stations, hotels, and airports that taxis always frequent, you don't take them off route, you don't divert them, you fit into their operating schedule, and you keep them full of energy 24 hours a day. That very same idea can be applied to buses and trucks and every other fleet vehicle and it turns out to be the lowest cost of ownership model that you can uh, put together. That's interesting. Interesting. So, so Andy, um, quickly, I, I was just wondering, and many of our listeners will also, and users, think about this. Is wireless charging then good or bad or neutral for the battery pack? Well, how does it affect the battery pack of the vehicle? I'm so glad you asked that question. It's, it's one that more people should ask. Uh, Mm -hmm. The effect of more frequent charging is very beneficial to all battery packs, even outside of the chemistries of lithium. 
But within mm -hmm. the realm of lithium batteries, what, whatever flavor of lithium we're talking about, it really doesn't matter. The best way to preserve the life of the battery is to avoid two things. One is to overheat the battery, which no one should do, and that will re reduce the lifetime of the battery. Um, mm -hmm. And that's what battery management systems are designed to do to prevent that from happening. But the mm -hmm. other thing, and the thing that will ruin your iPhone and your Android just as easily, is to allow your battery to fully cycle and go down to near zero state of charge and then fill it back up and cycle and then cycle again and keep doing that. Now, I'm guilty of this myself with my iPhone, but if you do that with a $90,000 car, you will, quick, you will degrade the battery more quickly. The alternative is to sort of graze rather than guzzle. And if you, if you can graze a little bit of charge here and a little bit of charge there and, in fact, add energy to your battery more frequently, it could have a lifetime two times longer than it normally would. And that's mm -hmm. not an exaggeration. That's actually, there are studies to prove that. Right. Thanks. So then Andy, how does uh, wireless charging help manage the energy usage at the grid level if you're doing this uh, intermittent graze type of charging or a bulk charging? I think we're looking at a, a major paradigm shift in the way that the transportation sector interrelates with the energy sector. And the energy sector, of course, here is the electric utility sector, and they will have to cooperate uh, for this to all work. We're talking about a massive global transition to a new fueling paradigm. And what we have right now probably can't continue as is. So what we have right now is typically four peaks during the day where we see maximum demand. And we'd like to level those peaks out a bit. Uh, and we have declines of underutilization at other parts of the day. What happens when electric vehicles hit the market is really something that we have to learn to control and apply software and intelligent controls to. But I believe that the following will happen. It is, it is a, a mistake to believe that all charging can happen in the evening hours at night. It has to happen during the day, but the system really does need to be distributed. So if you look at a distributed energy delivery system where there are microcharging events going on throughout the day, you can avoid the peaks, fit in between the peaks, and level out the load across the, uh, the whole scheme. If you add to that renewables and grid storage capability, which is, in, uh, in my view, inevitable, then you really have the great solution that we're all looking for without having to build a whole new uh, population of generators. Excellent. Okay, so uh, Andy, moving on, um, shifting gears here. Now, in terms of um, speed of charging, like is wireless charging, I'm just wondering, slower or faster than the cabled version of charging? Uh, it's another common question that we get, actually. And the answer is a kilowatt is a kilowatt. So whether it is delivered by a copper wire con conductive to your vehicle or through an inductor, it doesn't matter. And that's what controls the speed of charging. So the answer to your question is it's the same speed as a uh, similarly rated conductive charger. So if you have a 50 kilowatt wired charger, it is just as fast as a 50 kilowatt wireless charger. Good. Thanks. And, and if I may add one, to, one point to that, yeah. there, is, there is a common misconception that there's a greater efficiency loss 
on the inductive system than there is compared to the conductive system. Right. That's not, that's not true. So mm -hmm. what, what we've learned by actual practice is that a properly designed, properly engineered inductive charging system with which is an air gap transformer in all in all effects is actually about a percentage point better in efficiency than the best DC fast chargers that are conductive. The reason for that is your losses do not occur in the air gap. They occur in all of the conventional places, the resistive elements and the power transformation elements that occur in the circuitry. Those are common to plug-in and, and uh, wireless charging systems, but there are fewer power transfer stages in the inductive system. So we have fewer losses. That's Excellent. All right, thanks. Andy, another question is commonly, you know, people in the power electronics industry have is the safety aspects of wireless charging. What happens if an object is, is in between or a pet crawls into the space and, uh, and so on? So, Sure. The, we, of course, we get that question frequently. Um, the first thing to understand that some people take for granted is that um, a wireless charging system is not energized until there is a vehicle positioned above it. So the vehicle has to be acknowledged and authorized and recognized to be a compatible vehicle so that it can receive a charge. And then the system turns itself on. And this all happens automatically. So we're not generating a magnetic field into the air and letting people walk over it. Um, that's the first part. The second thing is that we operate at a um, operational frequency of 85 kilohertz. And at 85 kilohertz, there is no risk of uh, tissue damage uh, based on an alternating magnetic field at power levels at which we're operating. So the stray magnetic field that you would experience by standing next to a vehicle or standing or sitting within a vehicle is uh, essentially non-harmful because you're not getting, you're not experiencing magnetic field levels that are much higher than background. And at 85 kilohertz, I should say it this way, if you look at the IEEE C95 standard, which is the gold standard for determining health risks, you don't have tissue heating until you exceed 300 kilohertz. And then above 300 kilohertz and getting into the AM band and beyond, that's where you begin to see uh, alternating magnetic field tissue damage due to heating. But below 300 kilohertz, there is no heating of tissue. And we're at 85 kilohertz. Now that's a very brief, too brief explanation of, of the uh, physics of, the health physics of this uh, technology. But I can assure you that there, this is no different than an induction cook stove, for example, where you would stand with your belly next to the stove and be exposed to the same stray magnetic field that we produce. Right. Thank you. So excellent. Um, so Andy, you touched upon this a little bit. I'm just wondering, so 85 kilohertz obviously comes from standards which are currently defined for for wireless charging. So can you just comment on what those current standards are? And also, yeah. where do we go in the future in terms of standards for wireless charging? So that's a very um, convoluted story that goes back a number of years, almost about a decade now. Um, I will say that at this moment in time, there is no interoperability standard for wireless charging other than 
the de facto standard that we have established with the commercial deployments that Momentum has, has uh, put into place across multiple vehicle types. Mm -hmm. A good standard must be able to treat multiple power levels and multiple vehicle classes, not just cars. Mm -hmm. Such a standard does not exist today. It is, mm -hmm. there, is, there is an effort to put one into place, but it's premature to talk about that until it's proper to announce it. Mm -hmm. I will say that, um, to their credit, the uh, Society of Automotive Engineers, the SAE, mm -hmm. has been mm -hmm. working hard to create a standard, but the, um, the, the physics of near-field magnetic resonance systems is oh. not well understood, and the difficulty of creating a standard has caused that to become a very complex committee action. SA 2954, <clears throat> excuse me, is really not in a position to be adopted, and I don't believe it will be adopted commercially. So we should see a new standard emerge, uh, I think, independently in 2020, and uh, that will answer the needs of the automakers, truck makers, and bus makers of the world. Of the world. Interesting. Thanks. So, so on the continuing on the same lines, do you know about the um, compatibility issues? You know. Uh, do you foresee any compatibility issues? And then would EVs uh, have to come with inbuilt compatibility with uh, wireless charging platforms? So for, these are sort of two questions. When we talk about compatibility, there is no physical or electrical or magnetic reason why a inductive charging system could not be mounted to any vehicle you could think of, including a forklift or a car or a truck or a bus. As a matter of fact, we've done it, so we know that that's true. Uh, so from a physical interface standpoint or an electrical standpoint, there is no reason not to do it. From an electrical magnetic interference standpoint, there's also no reason not to do it because it the, the frequencies at which we operate and even the uh, higher harmonics fr uh, from that system, we do not create any interference with ADAS systems or the electronic componentry on vehicles, either by conducted or radiated emissions. And we've tested and we know that to be true. So we're, we know that we're compliant with FCC parts 18 and 15. And so EMI is not a compatibility issue. Now, when we talk about, um, the need to put a component on a vehicle and having acceptance by OEMs. The fact is all charging systems, what be they conductive or inductive, have a two-part system. There's always a part on the vehicle and always a part on the ground. Even with plug-in systems, except they're typically kind of invisible on plug-in systems. We see a port on the side of the car, it opens up and we put sort of this fueling hose or plug into the thing and we think there's nothing in the vehicle that's particularly expensive or heavy or difficult. Well, in fact, in an AC level two system, there's a very expensive part on the car that nobody pays attention to. It's an onboard charging control module and um, those things are pretty expensive. So you don't even realize it, but the voltage transformation and the conditioning of the signal, of the power signal, all happens on board the vehicle, and you've got to put that expensive component on every vehicle. In a wireless system, we do also have to put a component on the vehicle, and it's about as expensive as a DC fast charging component is. And you can think of wireless charging as DC fast charging without cables. 
So yeah. there is no compatibility or, um, uh, 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 you know, a, a possible difficulty of, of fitting the system to the vehicle. Interesting. Excellent. Well, okay. So Andy, at this point, I think we'll move ahead with what could be, you know, in terms of future of, of um, electrification via wireless charging. So cities, you know, around the world nowadays are encouraging electrification in order for them to become more cleaner, smarter, et cetera. Um, do you think they'll be major enablers of wireless charging? The cities absolutely will be, uh, especially, uh, you know, we're, we're, we have a, a big focus on, uh, on Europe and uh, particularly right now, Northern Europe and the UK. Uh, the mandate requirements are scheduled into law and uh, by date certain, and you'll see in Oslo, Norway, one of the first deployments happening uh, that is the combination of both commercial and um, uh, public interests. So um, the future, if we're talking about the you know, potential future applications, uh, mm -hmm. you'll see that uh, the unfortunate circumstances of, of this of this uh, coronavirus have shown us that we can clean up the air of our cities very clearly, very quickly, by moving to electric vehicles. And the quicker we can do that, the better off all of us will be. And that has to happen across fleets as well as cars. So you'll see this uh, inductive charging in port facilities, supporting crane operations and. Uh, the uh, tractors that move cargo containers around, you'll see it in distribution centers, you'll see it in all of the online delivery vehicles and last mile delivery vehicles. You will see it in the buses and the trucks that deliver everything from laundry to lobsters. You will see it in cars. You will see it first in taxis and then in passenger vehicles. And there, in every case, there is a strong economic incentive to go with an automatically operated system. Hmm. Good. Interesting. So on the same lines, you know, uh, as the future of autonomous vehicles and, you know, become more popular, you know, how does electrification tie in with AVs, autonomous vehicles? Well, I, I would say that um, you can't have level five autonomous vehicles without wireless charging. You have to have an autonomous fueling system to operate with an autonomous driving system. That also tends to benefit the lower levels of autonomy. Even um, I can tell you, for example, we have charged autonomous level five vehicles for uh, one of the major producers of that technology. We did that in 2015, actually, at 25 kilowatts for a car. We've also done simple auto park integration with a, a last year. We did that with um, a company in Sweden. And uh, that was a total success. It's kind of really cool to watch a car park itself and then start charging without a human being in it. So uh, I can tell you, when you see it, there's, there's two reactions you have to wireless charging. One is you don't know it's happening because it's silent and invisible, and you have to wait for somebody to tell you that it's happening. But when they tell you that the car just parked itself and there's no driver in it, or it's a bus and it just turns on and charges by itself, that's not what people are expecting, and it comes as a very pleasant surprise. Thank you. Excellent. Now, is there a risk, Andy, that automakers – around the world will want to own their own proprietary solutions to this I technology? Think, 
I think quite to the quant, uh, quite to the contrary, the uh, automakers have said to us, to to a company, that they want a single, uniform, un- interoperable system and not a proprietary system. They mm-hmm. don't want to go through the system of or the 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 fractured system of uh, Chatmo versus uh, Tesla versus. Uh, CCS again, and it's kind of uh, ironic. The wireless system that we have today cuts across mm-hmm. all of those. It doesn't matter if we're charging a um, a Nissan or a uh, a CCS vehicle. Our system interoperates with all of them right now, so uh, we're, we're we actually have the interoperable uh, universal system. Excellent. <laughs> Thank you, Andy. I think we're coming more closer to the end of this podcast, and a few more questions. Um, so, uh, what would be the other future applications of wireless charging other than EVs uh, you envision? It's it's a little bit like a kid in a candy shop, you know, because uh, we've got this technology that can be used for so many different things. Right. Um, but one has to think carefully about the use case uh, benefits that come to and, you know, that, that really cause somebody to need to use uh, the automatic charging. So, for example, the Qi chargers that we might see uh, and use for our, our cell phones, mm-hmm. to me, that's not a compelling use for wireless power because uh, this little thing that fits in my hand called a cell phone is so easy to plug in and unplug that there is no great benefit or change in activity uh, to just drop it on a Qi charger. Uh, on the other hand, um, a 5,000-pound electric vehicle is quite different, and so um, there's a very different use case, and, I, and people forget to charge those, and all of a sudden, those very expensive things are not useful to people because they can't go anywhere because they don't have any energy. Uh, and if you ask, what else can they be used for? Uh, they can be used to automatically connect hospital beds to electrical supplies and data supplies wirelessly so that nurses and doctors and people who work in hospitals do not need to handle the wires um, and plug them into the wall to get the benefit of the electricity that the bed needs. Mm-hmm. Um, and therefore, you would cut out an infection vector that way. That can become very, that is very relevant right now. You can uh, apply this to medical devices in a very positive way to power implanted medical devices, such as um, ventricular assist devices for uh, people who need help with their hearts, right. and provide power to them through the skin without a opening in the skin. And that is something, of course, we're interested in. But as a company, we have to focus on one particular business area. And that's what we're doing. Vehicles that are closely related in function and and design with one common modular technology that can be economically produced for that market. I see this going everywhere. Within the next 10 years, you're going to see many more wireless power systems for different purposes. And other companies, I'm sure, will be developing those uh, and will be happy to be a part of that. Thank you. Great. Um, So that's about all the questions, Andy, we had. Uh, We're coming to the close of this podcast. Um, I was wondering if you, uh, if there's, is there anything else that you would like to add or talk about, which we may not have uh, covered during this uh, podcast uh, interview uh, that you would like to share with our listeners? Not, not very much. I would say I, I'm very uh, appreciative of the opportunity to speak to your audience. Um, you know, the funny thing is, if I could end on this point, is, is that 
when I go out and speak, and before all of us were closed in by the current conditions, I, I used to travel around the world and talk to audiences. Yes. And almost universally, what I would run into is some naysayer in the audience who would say, that's too good to be true. You can't do that. And <laughs> it's, kind of, it's kind of funny to be told that you can't do that. I was once told by one um, very senior engineer and an automaker that we were violating the laws of physics by doing what we were doing. Obviously, it works, so we're not. So uh, the the uh, the idea of being told that it's too good to be true is one of the nicest things I've ever heard anybody say. So <laughs> that's great. It's it's motivation for all of us who are in the field doing research including myself and there's several others around in the Polychronic Society. You know what? Thank you, Andy. This was so invigorating and, and you know, uplifting. And we see a future for wireless and, and all things that you spoke about. It's it's really uh, positive. So really, thank you Hi, for your time. Sorry to interrupt. Hi, this is Michael. Hi, everyone. You, you may yeah. have passed the point now, and if so, that's okay. I wondered if, Andy, you wanted to talk about the, the difference between pilot programs and scaling. And how that is going to affect people's view of wireless. Because just for everyone's context, what we're finding is the the small pilots that are happening now, they're five and 10 buses or vehicles. Mm -hmm. They're not really yet experiencing the operational problems that full scale um, adoption will, will create. So if you imagine a bus depot of 200 buses, and you're having mm-hmm. to plug those in every night with wires and cables. That's a very different proposition from five right. buses. So we're seeing that we can see this sort of tsunami of problem approaching, and we're not sure everyone else can. So mm. it may be that you're out of energy and you don't want to do this question, but it's just there if you want it. Oh, sure, maybe we can or not. We can. Uh, Prasad, do you want to go ahead and ask the question? Uh, well, well, you know, Michael just said, uh, Michael is, is, a, is a communication director at Momentum Dynamics, and the users can actually go to MomentumDynamics.com to learn more about the technology. And if you may want to address the fleet issue, and then if there are uh, more than 200 buses or so, and all the issues uh, around that. Sure. Uh, the, the, um, the, the, what we're witnessing right now are the early nascent stages of fleet development of electric vehicles. And you've seen uh, many townships and cities and communities adopt three, four or five electric buses and try them and learn how to use them. And they've fit those into their schedules and into their depots to charge them at night. And they think uh or they begin with the thought that they can plug them in and that they'll go all day long. And what they have found are two things. Number one, the buses don't drive far enough on a single charge. And that is especially true when it's cold. And everybody in Pels should know that batteries don't perform as well when they're cold. Right. So that that treats the, the we treat the issue of range extension by en route charging of these buses, which decentralizes the charging system, which solves the second problem. The second problem is that when you scale and you go from three to 300 buses, imagine a garage or an open lot with 300 plug-in chargers and you can't do it. There's no room for it. There are no people to go plug them all in. They are parked nose to tail and so close to each other that there's no room in between them. And you've got the spaghetti works of wire and 
accidents where they knock over the plug-in charger. And they're discovering, wow, we don't know how to do this. We, we, we need help to figure this out. So the answer to all of that, and it's more complicated than just that, you have to build a substation and all sorts of things that are in the megawatt class. But right. the idea is to decentralize the fueling from the depot. You don't put it all in one place. You distribute it around the city. And if you do that, you need fewer chargers. You need fewer interconnections. You can build into the schedule um, the system that charges the, the vehicle and extends its driving range, regardless of the weather. Only an inductive charging system can do this because it, it passes the magnetic field through water, ice, and snow. And the overhead charging systems are not acceptable to most communities and are very, very expensive. So you've got a solution here to the um, oncoming scaling problem for fleets. And what I just said is true for trucks and it's true for all other vehicles uh, in the end, actually. So the early lessons are not necessarily indicative of how things are going to be uh, worked out over time. Excellent. Well, thanks, Andy. That's all the time we really have. Uh, thanks for taking up, uh, you know, the request for interviewing with us on this uh, Pels podcast as part of the uh, on behalf of the Education and Digital Media Committee. Uh, we would like to thank you for your time. It was really uh, uh, it was really nice to see the positives and the future that uh, wireless charging presents not just for automotive and transportation, but as you said, also for smart cities and other applications. We really thank you for your time. Thank you once again, and we'll take a leave uh, at this point. Take care. It was my pleasure. Thank you. Everyone.